This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us here at Pantsuit Politics. We are excited because we have such a special guest for you today. We're going to introduce you to Callum Williams from The Economist. He wrote such an illuminating article about why healthcare is in crisis around the world. Mm-hmm. It put a lot of pieces together for us. I'll be honest, when we were looking at the article, it has a lot of data in it. And I thought, how's this going to translate to a conversation? Well, the answer is perfectly, because Callum was an outstanding guest. So we're so excited for, to share this with you. But first, we are going to have to spend some time talking about what is happening in the sky. Mm-hmm. And then outside of politics, we'll obviously talk about the Super Bowl. Also happening partly in the sky. Y'all, we are so excited to be heading to Orlando for our first live show of the year. If you are in the Orlando area or will be visiting there, we would love for you to come to our show Wednesday, April 5th at the Abbey. It's going to be a blast, and you can get all the details in the show notes. So check it out. Up next, just check in with the unidentified aerial phenomena of the weekend. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, We all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of make my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see, after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season, that I have nice-looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our fearless finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. a lot of notes, Sarah, but I think the title of this segment is, there's a whole lot we don't know happening in the clowns. (laughs) Since the giant balloon from China was shot down off the coast of South Carolina, we had on Friday 
an unidentified object the size of a small car shot down near Dead Horse, Alaska. P.S. The names of Alaskan cities. I just, I can't wait to go spend our month in Alaska (laughs) that we've been (laughs) contemplating because I just am fascinated by this area of the world. On Saturday, we had another unidentified object. This one, cylindrical. Oh, Similar in shape to the balloon, but a lot smaller. Okay. And it was shot down over Canada's Yukon. Ooh. And it was flying a lot lower than the balloon, which meant it could have been a problem for civilian aviation. Good luck getting that back. I think getting something out of the ocean would be easier than getting it out of the Yukon. No kidding. Okay, and then on Sunday, we have an object shaped like an octagon shot down over Lake Huron. This one had some strings hanging off of it. Sure. They have remarked in reporting that there is no detected payload, which I thought was an unnecessary detail that made me more nervous (laughs) than comforted when it was mentioned. (laughs) The administration said this one was low. This one was flying at 20,000 feet, and so it really potentially threatened civil aviation. So just to kind of regroup here, we've closed our airspace twice briefly to investigate what's going on. We seem to be closely coordinating with Canada. As we're recording, we don't know what these objects were. We don't know why they were here. We don't know who sent them or how they were sent or when they were sent. We just don't know Mm -hmm. a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I feel confident that they're not aliens. I'm just going to put that out there. Do I have any expertise, inside information, access to data relevant to this situation at all? No, I do not. But I do live in the gut triad, which I feel like is relevant. And I'm just telling you right now, my gut says these are not aliens. Well, your gut and an anonymous official to several outlets has said nobody seriously thinks these are extraterrestrial. So let's eliminate that. I think that's helpful. That's cool. That's helpful. Okay. Yeah. So here's here's my perception of events. The China balloon went a little awry. And as a result, we shot it down. And then when we scooped it up out of the ocean, everybody was like, hold up. Y'all were taking way more than we thought you were. Everybody has some balloons. No big deal. It was sort of like, a, a you know, agree to ignore each other's balloons. And then we got access to a balloon and we were like, this balloon was gathering way more information than we thought it was. And now we're big mad. And so then the people from NORAD came out and said, okay, we're going to adjust our filters a little bit. We're going to pick up more of what's out there in the sky. And with the finer filters, we, in fact, did identify some objects that we thought should come down. Is that your overall perception of what happened? I mean, there's definitely a lot of reporting that we are finding these objects because we are looking for them now. Mm -hmm. And that has not always been true. I don't know if there seem to be a lot clustered right now because, you know, four and eight days is a lot (laughs) in peacetime. I don't know if there are a lot because... China is messing with us at this point, or China and Russia, the balloon kind of set off a, hey, let's test things out. Let's see what they do next. I don't know if the administration is saying, do not interpret our patience with the first balloon as a signal that we're going to be cool with things in our airspace. I don't know if it is sort of political. Okay, Republicans, you think we were too slow? Well, watch this. (laughs) We will blast the things. I just don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't feel particularly alarmed by it. I feel unsettled, but not alarmed. Because I think we are surveilled in so many ways that are so much more intense than this constantly. Now, that I think is an interesting and worthy subject to explore. This is just a strange moment because there's so much that we don't know, and I I just want to know more. Well, and sneak peek, we are planning an episode this summer about Edward Snowden and his leaks with regards to surveillance. I started some of that research over the weekend, so I'm in a very surveillance state of mind. I'm also not alarmed about these additional objects that they shot down this weekend. I am alarmed by how much the Chinese were gathering from the very first balloon. That makes me angry. It's really unfortunate (laughs) with regards to the timing and our diplomatic relationship with China, but I don't think we can ignore it in the service of diplomacy. For a country that complains so much about their sovereignty being violated, that was a massive violation of ours. And so this just seems like the first sort of immediate reaction, maybe not measured response, but reaction to what we discovered about the balloon. I think it's normal. I think it's natural. And I think we're just going to learn more and more. And maybe it's just because I was doing all the research this weekend. I feel like we'll have a whistleblower (laughs) sooner rather than later saying, you want to know what's going on with these balloons? Maybe from China or Russia. I don't know. But I feel like we are just on the beginning 
of this journey into these aerial objects. I think that's right. I don't know if it was unfortunate related to our diplomacy or if it was intentional related to our diplomacy, because China has a long history before meeting with U.S. officials of doing something to just mess with everybody a little bit. And I think they could just be messing with us. And then some of these objects may have nothing to do with China. It seriously may just be that the filters came down and we're finding a bunch of stuff from even non-state actors that we haven't noticed before. So it's it's hard to say. I do just have that, like, on-edge sense that happens to me occasionally. Every once in a while, we'll hit on a run of stories that will make me feel a little off-kilter. And I think that story plus the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and not the earthquake itself as much as the government's inability to respond to the earthquake there. And then we've got this cyclone approaching New Zealand and these travel advisories. The United States just said, if you're in Russia and you're an American, get out because the risk of wrongful detention is so high. The State Department has said, don't go to these parts of Mexico because kidnapping and violent crime is so high. And all of that has left me just feeling a little wobbly. I don't know if I feel wobbly. I feel furious about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria because this death toll was so unnecessary. I can't stop thinking about the earthquake in 1999 and that this death toll is so much higher when we should have learned plenty at that time to protect people. And the idea that people were crying out alive in the rubble and died for lack of rescue is so unnecessarily tragic, as is the the entire situation in Syria. I think Erdogan is a terrible leader. I hope he loses the election in May. I hope all the conservatives in our country who have propped him up feel enormous shame and guilt, although I know that is unlikely. I'm just so angry for what has happened to the people who've lost their lives and continue to be affected by this earthquake. And it just seems so unnecessary on so many levels. And I think instead of, you know, feeling sort of disconcerted by things that come that we can't control, maybe that's why. Maybe I'm just focusing on this thing that like was preventable. The death toll in those countries did not need to be this high. Yeah, as we're recording this morning, officials say that 36,000 people have died. That number changed while I was preparing for the episode. Mm. I saw reports that it was 32,000 and then it became 36,000. And it's hard to even trust the number given how chaotic the response has been, how unprofessional the response has been in certain parts. I don't want to take anything away from the people who are doing their very best, but the rescue workers aren't getting what they need to do the job that I know that they want to do there. So When we have all these stories, which to me bring a longer list of questions than information, my sort of coping mechanism is usually to just like look up at the sky and think, wow, we don't know anything. Here we are. Just I was in my backyard this weekend. It was so beautiful here this weekend. And I was looking up at the stars and I thought, I I think this is so beautiful. And also any one of these could just explode right now and take out. (laughs) everything. And it's just hard to live with that reality. And I think we're not really wired to live with it all the time. But every once in a while, a story just kind of pokes at that sense for me. And and I think the the unidentified objects that we're not even calling balloons yet, because we don't know, is doing that. As consumers in a mass media environment, we take in a lot of stories with a lot of death. But this is generationally impactful. Like, we don't often hear of events even across the globe with this amount of life lost. Like, it is exceptional and unique. My husband and I were walking this morning. He was like, it makes everything seem fragile. And I said, no, it makes us feel fragile because we are. (laughs) That's the difference, right? It just makes us feel Mm -hmm. fragile because we are. And any sense that there is stability in our own lives, like these stories are a reminder that, It is just a sense. It is not a reality. And I think that is always hard to hold. And it's particularly hard to hold with a story that can leave you feeling not only fragile, but powerless in the face of all this suffering. And that's that's really difficult. We wish that as natural disasters occur, every government 
software doing its best to be prepared for them, both on the front end and in the aftermath. Building the kind of infrastructure that supports that response matters across the world. And so we're going to transition now to a different type of infrastructure, but a related one, which is our healthcare systems. We are really prioritizing better understanding healthcare this year, and we are so delighted to have Callum Williams with us for a conversation. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. He joined in 2014 and covers global economic trends. He's the author of The Classical School, a book about the history of economic thought, and an absolutely delightful conversationalist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library, a fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing, I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Thank you so much for joining us here at Pantsu Politics. Thank you for having me. I have to tell you, this article in The Economist, why healthcare services are in chaos everywhere, hit me at just the right moment. You know, the article talks about in the beginning that with the pandemic, there was this concern about overwhelmed health systems, but the pandemic begins to wane, but it's like the stories about overwhelmed health systems just increase. And I think why it struck me so powerfully is we kept planning a show on healthcare in the United States. We kept like, it just kept getting bumped. Like we knew that healthcare costs were rising and we knew something was going on that just kept getting bumped and we kept getting bumped because I was also reading these stories about the UK and the crazy weights they're having for ambulances. And so when this article came along and said, knock, knock, this is a global problem, everything sort of clicked into place. And I thought, okay, that helps. So how did this click come about to write the article that 
we're seeing this problem across the globe. What exactly is happening? So the click came really from travel. So mm-hmm. um, I have family in, my wife's Canadian. I have some family in, in France and I've got family in the UK, which is where I'm, I was born. And then I live in the US. And so over kind of November and December, I was in all four of those places. And you had these kind of weirdly similar conversations with people where they would say, the health system, by which they mean our health system. So French people talking about the French one, Canadians talking about the Canadian system. It's in complete crisis, like the government's messed up. People are having to wait for months and months for operations or the emergency rooms are really full. And, you know, this is just a disaster, which is true. But what I think occurred to me when I was traveling was like everybody thinks that their health system is unique in some way. Whereas actually what's happening at the moment is reflective of like a global thing. And I just kind of realized that no one had quite said it in those terms. And so that was really the inspiration for the article. And it was so helpful. So helpful as you 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 kick it off talking about excess deaths. Yeah. You're seeing excess deaths in a lot of places. Not absolutely everywhere, but certainly uh, in in places, even in places that like did reasonably well during the pandemic so like germany for example didn't have a huge number of people dying from covid you know it wasn't as politicized as it you know was in in the us and, and so forth but certainly by the end of last year excess deaths which is basically like how many deaths would you expect there to be in december versus how many deaths were there actually in december the actual number of deaths was way 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 higher like 25% higher. So just not not like a little bit higher, like Mm -hmm. really quite a lot higher. And it was true in the UK. It's it's true in the US where there's been on the order of like half a million excess deaths in 2022, which is massive. And that was the other thing. That was the other kind of weird thing for me, which was that until about a year ago, people that were interested in the news were very interested in like data on COVID cases and COVID deaths and like deaths in general. It was quite a morbid time. And then in the past year, as as kind of people have moved on from COVID, the conversation around those things has kind of stopped. But then I was like looking at the data and there's there's actually quite a lot of countries where 2022 was actually had more people dying than in 2021. When there were all these big waves of COVID, you know, there were lockdowns in loads of places in 2021. There was no vaccine for a lot of 2021, you know, and then 2022 comes along and we think, Basically, everyone who's who wants to be vaccinated has been vaccinated, or they've already had COVID, so they're not going to get sick again. We're, we're through it. We're past the worst. But actually, for a lot of countries, that wasn't even the worst. It was it was going to get even worse. We just don't really talk about it anymore. You point out in the article that some of the getting worse comes from what I'm going to call pent-up demand. Is that an, a fair characterization from the COVID times? I was reading the article thinking, it sounds like what we have been trying to prevent, especially in the early days of the pandemic, we just put off. Yeah. And accepted a different form of. Mm. I think that's right. Yeah. So 2022 was, as I say, deadlier in, in lots of countries than 2021. But th- it is true that like these the people that are dying in 2022 are on the whole not dying from COVID. They're dying from non-COVID things. So y- you're absolutely right. You have this pent-up demand, which is basically people in I think this was probably more true in Europe than it is in the US, but you had a lot of people who kind of maybe felt a bit sick in like March 2020 or April 2020 or May 2020 and were like in normal times they would have been like I'm gonna go to my my doc my family doctor and they didn't and it turned out to be some you know something that like would have been preventable or solvable in 2020 but by 2021 was like more acute or and this is this was true in America what you had was a big decline in just routine examinations, mm-hmm. like just wellness checks and stuff. Yeah. And there's a paper which looks at that and basically says, well, it turns out that a lot of cancers are discovered during these checks. If you don't have these checks, you don't discover the cancer until it's too late. So that's kind of one, one piece of it. But then there's another kind of piece of the pent-up demand story, which is, so there's it, it's basically to do with how robust our immune systems are now to kind of just stuff that's normally in the air and on other people. Uh, And so obviously people have been talking a lot about, you know, kids getting sick and RSV and flu and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, there is, there is good evidence that this is really to do with people just not being exposed to those, those bugs for like a, a long period of time. There is this, as with everything on COVID, there is this kind of more political argument or like maybe even conspiratorial argument where on the one hand, some people say, 
that getting COVID itself has weakened people's immune systems and therefore made them more likely to get sick today. There's not really much evidence for that, basically because of the types of things that people are getting. It doesn't suggest that it's because COVID itself has made people weaker. And then on the other side of the argument, you have people who say it's the vaccine which has made people less immune to stuff today. Uh, Again, like there's no evidence for that, really. I also like how they separate those people out. Do you know, like, can you neatly organize everybody in your life from people who had COVID and people who got the vaccine? There's a a big Venn diagram of overlap there. How are you going to (laughs) sort those out? That is a very good point. But in in any case, so this is really getting to the very limits of my understanding because I mainly write about the economics of healthcare rather than like, you know, viruses and stuff. But my, my understanding is that there's basically the sorts of things that we're seeing today, like RSV, mm-hmm. are the kind of things that tend to kind of do really well when people don't have kind of built up immunity from from like not having had it for a few years. So that's yeah. why I think it's it's fairly well accepted that it's to do with that. So we have this feeling inside the healthcare systems. We have the reality that we have excess deaths. I think we have this definitely have this pent up demand. When I was reading this, I thought the only funeral that I went to in 2021 was from an elderly man who definitely didn't go to the doctor because of COVID and something got worse and he died. Like that's the yeah. that's the excess death that affected me. And it was not COVID, even though I live in a red state where there were not a ton of precautions and literally everyone I know had COVID. But when I like, I mean, that statistic you have about Italy, that cancer diagnosis fell by 40% in 2020 yeah. compared with 2018, 19. I mean, like, of course that's gonna have impact. But I thought the really interesting part was that economic argument where you're saying we're still spending money. The spending Mm. is there and the staffing. This is the part that got me. The total employment in so many of these healthcare systems is either at like pre-pandemic levels or above it. Yeah. And you still have this sense of like this industry in crisis, this this career in crisis, even though the employment is there. But it's the... The burnout is the productivity. I thought that part was so, that really filled in some missing pieces for me. Yeah. It's not what people think. I th- certainly not what I thought. I assu- When I started looking into this, I assumed that what is true is that a lot of uh, healthcare providers have, you know, they say it's become a lot more difficult to, to, to get workers and they're, they're putting out all these vacancies and people aren't coming forward and they've got fewer workers than they want. But no, it's, I mean, it's definitely true that in basically every country, there are more. There are more healthcare workers than ever before, basically, basically wow. everywhere, and, and by by a long way as well. It's not it's not as if kind of every year the healthcare employment goes up and then it's just kind of carried on going up as normal during the pandemic. It's like it's gone up by a lot, you know, by about ten percent, I think, for like nurses, for example. And then some people say, well, yeah, yeah but this is all because what's happened is that there's loads of like bureaucrats and administrators and like managers and like all the kind of bogey, the bogeymen of, of, of kind of healthcare, you know, discourse. But actually it's, this is doctors, practicing physicians, nurses, like proper on, on the ground, patient facing staff, that number has gone up a lot. And so the question is like, well, so what's going on then? So how can we have more staff than ever before and more money than ever before? You know, COVID, it's not that surprising that healthcare spending went up during COVID because obviously like Governments had to buy loads of tests and governments had to buy vaccines and all the treatments and everything. But then it kind of basically stayed really high in, uh, has stayed really high since. So all this money is being spent on healthcare. And so what that means just as, as an economist is essentially what that means is that productivity has has fallen mm. very substantially in, in, in the healthcare industry since really over the past year and that is that is not saying that healthcare staff are not working hard or working less hard they could be working even harder it's just that what their efforts are being put towards is less kind of useful than it used to be and and this is a big question no one really knows exactly why I mean there's a few suggestions that are put in the piece but what is definitely true is like you get the inputs into the healthcare system which are like money and people and then you get the outputs of the healthcare system which is basically like people getting better and essentially how much money hospitals are taking in from treating patients and that has gone way down so there's something going wrong in the middle mm-hmm. which is a bit of a puzzle around the world around, around the, world. the whole world yeah absolutely 
And that's really helpful. I think another reason, honestly, that we keep punting talking about this is that we know from our listeners in healthcare that they are working hard yeah. and that every story about healthcare feels intensely personal. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when I read the line in your piece that the healthcare system is essentially doing less with more right yeah. now, yeah. I thought that was such a straightforward and excellent encapsulation. And it's so hard for individual providers to hear. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And I just wonder, I, I know you said no one knows exactly what's going on, but I just keep coming back to the question, where is the more stuck? Is yeah. it a resource allocation problem? Like in a global sense, even even when you compare the United States to countries with single payer systems, we're seeing the same issue. So yeah. where is the more getting stuck? Okay, so I think there's one reason that I feel confident about And then there's one reason I feel less confident about to explain this. The reason I feel confident about is that staff are in general just much more tired than Mm -hmm. normal. And, you know, it's you you often hear and and did long before the pandemic in many countries that that healthcare staff were were overworked and and losing motivation and 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 all and underpaid and all that kind of stuff. And that, that may well be true. But after the pandemic, and you can see this in in very high quality data. It is true that healthcare staff, on average, are just feeling more burned out than before. Mm-hmm. So they're feeling that they, that for example, they're less likely to say they would recommend it as a career to others. They feel generally like more disempowered than they did before, and that kind of thing. And that has an impact on in a very can in a very significant way on on productivity because you know if you imagine the situation before covid somebody a nurse for example they may have come to work 15 minutes early to help the previous shift like finish they might have stayed half an hour afterwards to like help set up the next person coming in they may have helped out on a ward that they weren't really like responsible for just to like help out a friend or something if you're feeling less motivated in general you're going to do less fewer of those those kind of things that like kept the show on the road. Uh, so I think that's that's one thing. There is another, sorry, there is another thing that is I think very important, which is to do with COVID itself. You see this in lots of hospitals around the world, even though society at large has sort of moved beyond COVID almost everywhere, it's still the case that hospitals and healthcare providers generally are still bound by more COVID rules mm-hmm. than they were. So, for example, it is still true in loads of countries that if you get COVID in a hospital, you get put into another ward, into yeah. a COVID ward. There's lots of things like mask wearing, more checks. Like whenever I, you know, whenever I go to a doctor in the US, there's all these state forms you've got to fill in. Have you been traveling? Right, right, can right. You take, can you take 20 minutes to take a test? All this kind of stuff. And it might seem kind of marginal for each individual person, but these things they accumulate. And actually, mm-hmm. the thing about like a business, like a well-managed business is that like the margins of error are quite small. So once you add in like all of these things to do with COVID, right. it's not that surprising really that like hospitals are just, they're just managed less efficiently than they than they used to be. And then the third thing, which is more speculative and might not, it's hard, to, this one's harder to say, but I sort of reckon it's true, which is there's this like common idea that you read in the, in the new, news, for example, which I sort of referred to earlier, which is like, no one likes it when like healthcare when there's more healthcare managers no one likes it when there's more healthcare bureaucrats what people want is they want more nurses and they want more doctors but if you say we're going to boost the number of managers in the in the french healthcare system by 10% everyone's like that sounds terrible you should just let doctors like do their own thing which i understand but i do think there's gr- and so what you've had and so this is very true in the uk over the past 10 years is kind of like a bit of a war on managers in the healthcare system because it gets good headlines. No one likes healthcare managers. They want doctors. But the reality is that like every every kind of business, whether it's healthcare or anything else, does need management. Does mm. and it needs good management. And if you if you cut management, there is a risk that you basically end up giving doctors managerial tasks that they don't really want to do like hiring or like sorting out payroll or all this kind of nonsense which they don't really want to get involved in and so the reason I'm I'm not I'm not certain this is a reason is because there hasn't really been any research on that specific question but it kind of I kind of believe it to be true yeah that makes a lot of sense to me 
it feels related to a sentence that I thought was pretty revelatory at the beginning of your piece about how we have much better data about most economic issues than we have about healthcare, despite the fact that it's this enormous percentage of economies. And I thought, well, may- maybe this is part of the issue. I mean, we've had so much conversation yeah. around the CDC that data collection is a stumbling block for us to take meaningful action. And to your point about putting people in healthcare who aren't doing direct healthcare, I wonder if we would find outcomes that we like better if we tightened up that business perspective, not for the purpose of maximizing profit, but for actually measuring what's happening. Efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, the weird thing, so the weird thing about America in this in this regard is that America does actually have loads of managers relative to its like population size or whatever. So it's the US healthcare system is like much more managed than it is in, say, Europe. There's just way more managers. So, like the, you know, the managers to doctor ratio is much higher in in America than it is in in Europe. Well, that makes sense because there's more business than politics if it's not a government-run healthcare system, in a way. Yeah, I think that's basically correct. And it, and also, it's it's interesting because if there's one country which is suffering least from the trends that we're describing at the moment, it probably is the U.S. You know, there's just a lot of spare capacity. I mean, the thing about America is you, you like you you folks spend a lot of money on healthcare, as you, as everyone we knows, do. like a, a lot of money, way more per person relative to GDP, all that kind of stuff than like any other country. And there's a whole argument about whether that's a good use of money. And some people say it is, some people say it isn't. But what is, I think, undoubtedly true is that when your system comes under strain, such as in 2020 or today, there's just more spare capacity. There's more redundancy built in. And so you don't yeah. have those kind of capacity problems that you do in, say, the UK, where it's much, it's a much, much, much tighter ship. So it's, it's that trade-off between, you know, those those two things, basically. Well, and you hear that trade-off when people are like, it's like you can say, we have worse outcomes. Our mortality yeah. rate, our infant mortality rate, they're bad. And people are like, yeah, we don't have to wait. <laughs> you know, like, that's yeah. all that matters. I don't have to wait. Well, and it's so interesting because we don't have this sort of data. You know, we are left to like sort of feelings and anecdotes. And when I read your article, I immediately sent it to a friend of mine who, to her eternal credit, she works. She's a nurse anesthetist. She works inside the healthcare system. And she was on this train before I was reading it in any other news articles. Like she was like, people aren't getting cancer diagnosis. Like this is this. And she does a lot of like elective surgeries that was getting pent up because it's not just like cancer that didn't get diagnosed. It was like 16 different kind of like surgeries people weren't able to get. And now they're like, now when it now when it now because we don't like to wait again. And she was, it was interesting. I sent it to her and she's like, this is yes to everything. She's like, the only thing is these were like, some of this was a problem before. So if you're comparing it to like 2018, the staffing was too low then. Like that's what nurses, mm. I've heard nurses say that for a long time. Like our ratio, yeah. especially of intensive care units where the ratio is the difference between life and death yeah. of how many patients nurses are caring for and that's like what they were striking for in New York City. So she's like, you know, it's helpful to compare 2018, 19. Just don't pretend like that was a paradise either. And like that was the outcome we wanted, right? And I was like, well, that's probably fair too. Yeah, that's no, I totally take that point. So one thing that I didn't get into the article, which is I think is both quite controversial, but also is very interesting and, and hard to measure is like there have been conversations about like a shortage of healthcare workers in the US for literally close to 100 years like it's just every year every month you get a, an article or 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 a campaign or a report written about how there aren't enough nurses and not enough doctors that kind yeah. of thing and so one issue i was never able to resolve in my mind is like how do you know when there actually is a shortage versus people who are you know essentially i mean to be frank people who want make sure that their business is really well funded Right. I mean, this is certainly true in the UK where, you know, there is a there's a very strong lobbying effort by a lot of unions and 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 interest groups and that kind of thing for more money for the NHS, which is the like the state run provider in the UK. So it's always a difficult balancing act between obviously you want a well-funded healthcare system, but it's it's one of those beasts that will just eat more and more and more money. So at some point you have to be like, no, we're not going to yeah. give you any more money. And so it's but it's really hard to know where that point is. Yeah. When you're thinking about data from the U.S. and our peer countries, 
How do you account for just the difference in size and geography represented in America? Because I think about what what would my experience be in a Texas hospital versus a Kentucky hospital versus a Swedish hospital? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you think about that in your work? Yeah, that's a really good question. One thing that I was very keen to establish, which is talked about at the start of the article, is like, were there any parts of the U.S. during the first or second waves of COVID that were actually like overwhelmed, where hospitals did go beyond the point that they were supposed to go and like where the worst predictions did actually come true. And I was not really able to find anywhere where that was true. Like, the, I mean, the place that I was interested in for a while was South Dakota, where you'll know better than me, but, you know, they they didn't, they kind of had a lockdown, but they didn't, basically didn't have a lockdown at all. Mm-hmm. And the bars were open really soon after being closed that kind of stuff so if there was a place where you'd think this was going to get seriously awful it would have been there but it didn't didn't seem to really happen there well and those are rural hospitals which we read constantly are underfunded and shut down and serve too many people there's like a constant news narrative about that type of healthcare system Mm, mm. and the diversity that we find in america you know what i mean yeah. And on the other hand you have like super low population density Mm -hmm. which matters a lot for covid transmission so it's like a big mix of factors that's true. That's true. But then on the other hand, you have New York and probably New York came closer than anywhere because they had all those field hospitals in like Central Park or wherever they were. But those field hospitals didn't really get used from what I from what I understand yeah. from looking at the, the research on this. So they, in a sense, like, I, I, to be clear, I think it was a good idea to have them because you right, couldn't right, have known right. what was going to happen. But did you actually need them? No, you didn't. So in that sense, it was not necessary to have them. I mean, the question of like, does care in the US vary significantly from one region to another? I'm sure is, I'm sure must be true. I'm sure that in San Francisco with loads of people who work in tech, like they're getting super fantastic care all the time. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't clear to me that like those differences were like so stark in 2020 that like right. some areas were fine and other areas were totally on their knees. Like everywhere was like really working hard, obviously, and like under a lot of pressure, but it wasn't kind of a catastrophe anywhere from what I could see. Well, I love the end of your article where you say, the effects of malfunctioning healthcare systems go beyond unnecessary deaths. People come to feel that their country is falling apart. Mm. Back to that, like that feeling. If I'm called, you know, you're supposed to assure my safety and I call for an ambulance and no one comes. Like it just contributes to this sense that things are very bad. And it's like, I think there is a comfort where you feel like it's not just your country. This is some global stress. Same with inflation. I think all the coverage that was like, inflation is everywhere. Inflation is everywhere. Don't make this about the failing of our individual government or politics. This is, you know, the, the upside of sort of the global coverage. It can produce a lot of anxiety. But I think articles like this, to me, reduce it because they're saying it's nothing there's nothing special. This is just a hard thing we're all going through together. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, it is so weird, though, how even even now, it's basically journalists, because they, they frame the narrative on the whole. Mm-hmm. Journalist perspective of the world is just so, on the whole, just so, so parochial, so narrow. Yeah. And I think it's because, I don't know why it is, really. I mean, why is it? I guess partly because journalists like to criticize, I mean, for good reason, journalists like to criticize the government or whoever's in power on the whole a good journalist likes to hold power to account and you know show where people abuse their power whatever so they they were people like people like me always have an incentive to to try and find ways of criticizing whoever's in power but i think that could come at the and i think i think the other reason why people tend to focus on their own country is just like just frankly they're just not aware of like where to find numbers or data or statistics mm-hmm. about what's going on elsewhere. So if that was easier to find, then maybe people would be a bit more, they'd open their minds a bit more. But who knows? Well, and thought back to what you said at the beginning. You traveled. It wasn't like from behind your computer screen you were trying to no. crack the case. You no, were out true. in the world taking in experiences. We cannot intellectualize everything because our intellectual bent is criticism. And sometimes you have to be out there experiencing it for life to go, you had to see, you had to feel this, you had to see this, you had to live it, not just read about it. That's definitely true. And the last thing where you got me, you just threw it in. You just like threw this little piece in. I was like, oh, Colum, you're so mean. 
You're like, but with an aging population and COVID now an ever-present threat, pre-pandemic healthcare may come to seem like it was from a lost golden age. I feel like aging population is the only thing we're reading about right now. Beth and I are in a constant conversation putting together an episode, or I don't know, 15, it sounds like, on demographic changes and what that is going to mean for all of us. Mm. So the way, so I might say something that you m- might find a bit odd, which is true, which is basically that, although I did write it in the article, I think the aging population story is a bit overdone. For okay, that makes me feel better. Tell us more. So there are forecasts, which I think are pretty good, of like the average rich country. So like the US, France, Australia, Japan, like what's going to happen to their healthcare spending over the next 50 years? And all of these forecasts show it like absolutely exploding, like going really very, 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 very high and just increasing year after year after year. And so the question is, why is that? Now, when I first started looking into this, I assumed, well, obviously it's because everyone's getting a lot older. Actually, uh, the aging population story only explains about 10% of the rise. Okay. So if health, for example, if healthcare is going from 10% of GDP to 20% of GDP, if the population didn't age at all over that period, you'd expect it actually to go to 19% of GDP rather than 20% of GDP. So it's still going, it's whatever happens with population over the next, even if all the elderly people in America move to Canada, Health spending is still going. No, they go loads. south because it's yeah. warm, not or south. North. Yeah, or to Mexico. To me- to Mexico. I do like the gentle way you did that, though. It was it was like if you won the lottery. So the main reason for for this uh, this trend is actually to do with basically to do with the economics of healthcare, which is healthcare is just really, really, really weird thing. So when there's a new discovery in most industries, so say for example, when Apple discovers a new way of making an iPhone. Basically, iPhones do become cheaper. iPhones have become cheaper over time because they can be made more efficiently. But when you get a new discovery in healthcare, it actually tends to make things more expensive. Okay. Because, that is um, such a helpful insight. That yeah. is, I'm putting pieces together. I see where you're going yeah. with this. Yeah. So, so, for example, if you discover a new drug for, for, for cancer or whatever, you can give that to more people. You can save more people's lives. But because you're giving people more, you're spending more. So okay. that's one thing. So let's say CRISPR comes onto the scene exactly. and we've got some very expensive treatments available. To be clear, that's good, right? Because you're, yeah. I mean, you're, you're saving Hey, I have a type well. 1 diabetic son. Bring the CRISPR. I want totally. the CRISPR. So it's, I'm not saying it's bad, but it, it's just, it just means you have to spend more money as a society on healthcare. And then the other thing, which is even more difficult to understand, but is really important, is basically like, and this is really hard to explain without offending people who work in healthcare, but it's basically true. Healthcare is a bit like um, so. For, so there's this, there's this idea called cost disease, which is basically like imagine if you're seeing a string quartet in 1950. You go to the concert hall, you watch a string quartet pay, play a Beethoven string quartet, right? You then come back to the string quartet and see them 70 years later, a different one. Over those 70 years, loads of things in the economy have got way more efficient. You can like cook more quickly. You can travel around the country more quickly you can communicate much faster you can make manufacture goods much faster but that string quartet still takes as as much time as it did in 1940 to play and it still takes four people to play it so what what this basically tells you is that industries that have a lot of people working in them they find it very hard to have higher productivity so for example going to a restaurant today you've still got people like waiting on you still got a person at the front of the house you still got basically the same number of people working in restaurants as you did 50 years ago. So productivity in restaurants hasn't really gone up over 50 years. And it's true in healthcare also because you have lots of hands-on, it's labor-intensive, you've got people on the ward, nurses, doctors. Healthcare productivity isn't really any higher than it was in um, in like basically in the 70s. But the problem is, is that um, because other industries have got more productive, pay in those industries has gone up. And so what you'd have if you didn't raise doctors' pay was, would be that basically doctors quit and go to other industries. So basically, you're left with this weird situation where in order to stop people from quitting healthcare, oh, this is over the long period, you have to increase people's pay even though they're actually not doing any more than they were in the oh, past. Oh, I am feeling very... So, yeah. Puzzles clicking, pieces are clicking. So, you know, a nurse who's looking after five people is paid miles more than 
that person was 50 years ago, even though they're still looking after the same number of people. And that actually violates like a pretty like normal thing in economics and economic development, which is you get paid more as you produce more. Yeah. That's how wages are set. And so because of this cost disease problem, maybe you don't need to put a problem, but because of this cost disease issue, providers are going to have to just keep raising salaries over time. And if you mm. raise salaries over time, then your costs Things are get go more up. expensive. Well, like, don't be offended. And, That's just job security. <laughs> well, it's yeah, also, suppose, it's also yeah, that in every other realm, the inputs are advancing also. Yeah. But bodies are just bodies. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I spent a week in the hospital with my mom, and we were on a, a unit that was seemingly pretty short-staffed. Yeah. Her surgeon told her that he was so sorry. He knew this was the situation, and that if... He has patients right now that need a ton of care. He puts them in ICU, whether they need to be there or not, because that's the only place the ratios are where they can receive that good care. Yeah. Which is more expensive. Yeah. I was changing her bed sheets and and getting the laundry and just all of those pieces of caregiving that are exhausting physical labor. And, and it makes sense to me that you can't see increasing productivity because those pieces of just caring for a person are fairly static over time. Right. And also, by the way, you so there's also this other thing where, like, even if you could have higher productivity, you might kind of not want it. Like, imagine if it was possible somehow mm-hmm. for, a, for a nurse to look after a thousand patients rather than five. The whole thing would seem so impersonal. It would seem so clinical in a bad way. So people actually wouldn't want it. Mm-mm. So you actually, to say that there's not productivity growth is not like a criticism of healthcare yeah. or, and, and definitely not a criticism of like healthcare practitioners. They're doing a good job. You know? Yeah, because care is not productivity. Exactly. That's not the same thing. <laughs> and you see the places where they're fighting with the tools they're given to try to increase that productivity. Yeah. yeah. Like you can see how exhausted nurses are typing everything into the computers on carts that they're rolling everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, where we're trying to make this happen, it feels like it's just creating a tension instead of solving a problem. Yeah. Totally, well, and I think totally. to that other piece, I really feel where there, and again, it's not productivity, although I feel like sometimes we interpret it like that, but those, the better treatments, the technologies. Beth, what was that show we watched where it was like projected into the future with the family in Britain? Where was Yes. And it was like a it was like a number in the title. I can't. And remember. Emma Thompson was like the authoritarian dictator. Prime okay. Minister. Give me a minute, and I'll find it. I Do you know, know what it. we're talking about? It does sound familiar. I'll find yeah. it. Yeah. It but in familiar. that show where they're projecting into the future, like that's like the part that I thought this feels the most real to me was the takeoff in like healthcare technology, mm. and like all of a sudden the grandma could get like brand new ice. And like, like, and I was like, this is it. Just in the same way that crazy Tom Cruise movie, like that stuff felt the the realest to me because they really went out and talked to futurists and tried to figure out what was coming. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. Years and years. Years and years. Yes, I yes. don't know, actually. Yeah. Oh, you should watch it. It's good. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. that's it. Like, that's what's coming. It's going to be like, CRISPR is revolutionary technology and it's expensive now, but it won't always be no. as, ex- as prohibitively expensive. And they're going to figure some stuff out. Like, regenerative medicine and all that, that's going to change things. And it's going to be really expensive. Yeah, but really good, hopefully, as well. Yeah. And and yeah. perhaps, oh, I don't know, aligning nicely with this aging population that we have. <laughs> well, let's hope so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much to Callum Williams for joining us today. We can't wait to hear your thoughts and questions and reactions to that discussion. Up next, we'll talk about what's on our mind outside of politics, which is, of course, the Super Bowl. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. 
My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sarah, I went into the Super Bowl trying not to be like a sour grapes Mm, sports fan, but I do cheer for the Bengals. And so I did have to pull for the Eagles. Because I felt like we got a little bit of a raw deal versus Kansas City. Okay. But the Chiefs won 38 to 35 in what I'm told was a very exciting second half. I wouldn't know because I fell asleep. <laughs> but the beginning of the game was great. I mean, it was a great game. Yeah, I was rooting for the Eagles just because I think Philly sports fans are the best. I love that video Maggie shared on Instagram where it was like, Kansas City fan, what are you going to do if you win? I'm going to have some barbecue. <laughs> Philadelphia fan, what are you going to do if you win? I don't know. I'm going to blow some stuff up. Like, I just love it. I think they're so great. I'm so sad they lost. I had a Philly cheesesteak. My husband prepared. It was delicious. I watched the game, sort of. Um, Mostly, I was there for the commercials and the halftime show with Rihanna, which also involved things in the sky, floating platforms. I know they planned this for months and months in advance. And I read an article today that it was, in fact, to protect the field, which was real grass. But it just felt so on trend. Here we are talking about all these things in the sky. And where is Rihanna when this performance starts? 60 feet in the air. Incredible. You are much more excited about this than I Were was. Were you like, not I thought, I thought, well, that's visually interesting. Oh, my God. I mean, I thought it was interesting. But it didn't make me stop in awe and wonder the way I think it did. I am so confused because you are a physics person. You were like— No, I don't trust physics. I don't like physics at all. I know. So weren't you in awe of the fact that they had these giant platforms from wires that we could only barely see in the middle of a fo- open-air football arena? I mean, it's great. I don't know. I just didn't find it, like, particularly striking. What I thought about her performance is she is so talented. She is a superstar for a reason. I thought it was really interesting. I thought there were a bunch of really interesting choices. And I thought it was like medium to low level entertaining. It just wasn't fun the way a lot of Super Bowl halftime shows, especially last year's, are so fun. I thought this was like conceptual and good for her for making a whole host of statements with everything she did. And it was fine. 
I loved it. When those platforms were moving up and down and the dancers were on there and she was on there and you just like got a sense of truly how high in the air she was. Like, I, I recently went rappelling off a 60-foot rock. You guys, it's high. It's terrifying. And that she was up there, you know, often you'll go to concerts when they put them up in the air and they have something all the way around their waist that they're sort of holding on to. And she was tethered, absolutely. But she was not like encased in the way that I would want to be if I was, oh, by the way, pregnant and 60 feet in the air on this like seemingly hovering platform and giving a performance like with cameras in her face like I just thought it was incredible to see and like just the visual impact of the way they would change and she would walk across them and then they'd move back in the air I thought it was so stinking cool because I've seen a lot of halftime performances where it's just everybody going at full tilt and there's a bunch of special guests and it's like bam 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 and so I thought this was just a totally different vibe and I thought it was so and it's her vibe she is very cool (laughs) she just is not that like a lot of people who perform the Super Bowl aren't cool, they're rock stars, but like her vibe is different. And I thought she captured it so magnificently with and with the pregnancy announcement. I mean, I'm sure y'all were just like me. Immediately I was like, wait, is she pregnant? I know she just had a baby, but wait, that was last minute. <laughs> like everybody was like, wait, what happened? So I just thought it was cool. Now I again I don't think it was like high octane in the like her physicality of the performance was not high octane, but I thought Everything about it was so different and neat and visually stunning. I just uh, loved it. And her music is great. I don't think we're going to be getting any more music out of Rihanna for a very long time. She's clearly just leaned into the makeup mogul, which is good for her because it made her a billionaire. And I love the, like, moment with the Fenty Compact. But, I mean, I I think it was like she she hasn't put out an album since 2016, and she hasn't performed since 2018. And so this felt to me like, hi. I, I like, I want to give you guys something because I really do love you and I appreciate it. But don't think you're going to be giving like a tour and a new album out of me anytime soon because I'm living my life. And if I was her, that's the exact approach I would take. Good for her. I don't know why you would make the choice to do the grueling life yeah. of a musician when you can make all this money selling. Word. Money. Like, I just, I don't blame her at all. And I also thought it was just not a great reaction that. 30 seconds after the halftime show, you have all of Twitter being like, I mean, congrats on your baby, but I wanted a tour or a new single or an album or something. Like, no, good. Like, Brianna doesn't owe any of us anything. I think that was the whole vibe Mm -hmm. here. Like, her vibe was very much, I could take or leave this Super Bowl business. Do what you want. I thought Chris Stapleton was a little bit like that. He was like, fine, but not overly excited to be there. Just okay, you asked me to sing the national anthem. I'll do it at your little football game. It's it's yeah. cool. It was a very different feel all the way around, except I thought for Cheryl Lee Ralph, who I who approached it in the traditional Super Bowl yeah, way. Yeah, she was you know, I thought she was like, hello, this is a special thing. I am a big star. I am an entertainer, and I am going to show up for you. And I thought the commercials were the same. Like, they were good. They were funny. Nothing over the top except the Jesus ad, which whatever. So silly to spend hundreds of millions of dollars because you think Jesus has a bad reputation. I don't understand the motivation behind that at all, but it's just that's a whole show. The that's gymnastics you have entirely. to do in your own mind to say people misunderstand Jesus. He's really like humble and loving and empathetic, and we will spend a hundred million dollars to make an, a Super Bowl ad about that. I was like, just guys, guys, you don't have anybody around you telling you the truth. But I loved the Ben Affleck ad. Perhaps my favorite ad of the evening because I am just unapologetically here for Ben Affleck. All my boyfriends showed up. Adam Driver, John Hamm, Michael P. Jordan. Felt really good. I just liked having the whole crowd there. I thought all the commercials were fun. I mean, not all of them. Some of them were dumb, like the John Travolta one. But the rest of them were a delight. I thought that there was no commercial other than Clueless. I was so happy to see Alicia Silverstone. What ruined that a little bit for me is Ellen, my seven-year-old, goes, oh, she's Christy's mom on the Babysitter's Club. I was like, shh, no, she's not. Not right now. She isn't. Shh, stop with that. What I thought, not to be like, let's talk about politics in the outside of politics segment, but we do sometimes. And I just was thinking about how these commercials, if you are looking at the Super Bowl commercials as a barometer of American mood, it seems like we're doing pretty Mm -hmm. well. It seems like we're all pretty happy. We're pretty chill. We're just picking up the pieces. We'd like to see some movies. Yeah, we're moving on. We'd like to have some snacks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we just kind of want everything to come down to maybe a six from an 11. Yeah. And I thought that was great. 
We're pouring all our emotionality into our pets. Those were the <laughs> those were the commercials yeah. that made me cry. It's fine. Well, and, and that's a great point because there were a lot of like relationship family centric commercials. We're excited about having a baby. We're excited about kids growing up. We're excited about pets. We love our we love our people. Mm-hmm. And I just thought like this feels like a very healthy America compared to even the last Super Bowl and especially the two before that. If you look at that set of commercials and where we've been, this was nice and normal. And you had Rihanna up in the sky just asking everybody to chill out and be cool along with her. It's great. I love it. I did worry about Patrick Mahomes ankle the whole game. If we want to do a little bit a little bit on foot actual football. He came out that second half like he never hurt himself and I was like, "What happened back there, guys? What'd you give him?" <laughs> Some serious ibuprofen, clearly. <laughs> when he went to the locker room and the commentators were like, he'll get some pain relief. We were like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I bet he will. But that worries me for him. I didn't want him to hurt himself even worse. Like, I understand this is a very big deal. And it's obviously important to him. I mean, you can see both of those quarterbacks, their love of the game yeah. just leaps off the screen, right? But I didn't want him to hurt himself even worse. I hope he's doing okay. I could use some follow-up reporting on his ankle. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get it. I'm sure we'll get it. Well, I hope you all enjoyed the Super Bowl if you watched it. If you didn't, I understand that choice as well and hope you loved whatever you did with your Sunday evening. I know before we go, Sarah, you had a blessing that you wanted to share. Yes, today is the fifth anniversary of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. To the people whose lives were forever changed— that day, we just wanted to say that you are in our thoughts and our prayers. I know that's a weighted term, but it's still the truth every year. But I know some of these milestone years can be really hard and impactful, and we're just sending you all the light and love. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Please don't forget to check out that link in our show notes. If you'd like to join us live in Orlando, we'd love for you to be there. We'll be in your ears again on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.